Morning, Village Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together. Good to have uh, this room full of God's people singing praises to him. Good to have our youth students in here this morning. Yeah? Yes. First Sunday. It's good. Love it. <laughs> We're moving through uh, the book of Acts, and Paul has been arrested, and he has revealed that he is a Roman citizen, and he's on his way uh, to Rome eventually where he will be taken, um, he will have a trial, and that is where he will be killed in just a few years' time. Some passages we open up to in our Bible, they're just full of theology and just like raw doctrine, and you can make like memory cards out of them and, and flashcards of, of ideas and concepts and um, theology. And other passages are just full of historical events about the Israelite people or the early church and how God shaped history and Now we're in this long stretch of Acts where we mostly just see the life of Paul. We see the words of Paul. We see the attitude of Paul as he goes about a series of trials and difficulties that he really doesn't have much control over. And we see from this, our lesson then is not just coming away with just raw doctrines and maybe um, verses to memorize, but we see how God moves in every tiny detail of history. And And we come away saying, look at how a follower of Jesus can hold tightly to God in the midst of every moment, good or bad. And so that's what we see here this morning as we get into it. So we're going to jump right in. Chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Acts. You can look up on the screens. Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, and after five days... The high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Paul has been in custody for about five days, and we wait for the Jewish council to arrive. And this includes the high priest Ananias. It also includes this new lawyer dude that they brought along. Classic lawyer style, right? This guy, Tertullus, he just flatters the governor, Felix. He starts off with some flattery. He calls him most excellent. Was he most excellent? He was not. He says that Felix has brought much peace to the land. Did Felix bring much peace to the land? No, he did not. No, he did not. He says that he had great foresight. Did he have great foresight? He did not. Felix's rule in Palestine was marked with anarchy and insurrections. Josh mentioned last week they had a little problem with assassins. It's not a good problem. As Paul was accused of being one at one point... And Felix responded with brutal force, and he only made things worse. That's what we learn in history. And 
life under the rule of Felix was miserable, particularly for the Jewish people. But we have a smart lawyer here, and so he says what he says. And the charge is that Paul tried to profane the temple. They're speaking of a previous accusation. It goes back to chapter 21 that Paul had brought a Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple courts. And, and also that he was stirring up riots wherever he went. And now Paul gives his defense, if you look, starting in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So you see this trial kind of laying out in these phases. First you have these sketchy, kind of slimy religious leaders and they're they're anxious and they're skittish and they're changing their story from chapter 21 and they must succeed. They must defend their religious systems. Everything's at stake here. And then you feel the shift as Paul begins to speak. This is a man whose life is built on a solid rock. He has a remarkable simplicity to his life. Because Paul is a man who has accepted whatever, whatever outcomes lie ahead, and he just talks with confidence and peace, even though it is Paul who could be dead by the morning, right? And we see how it's possible. We see it in verse 15. It says, Paul says, I have a hope in God. And the way we use the word hope in, in our culture, it doesn't do justice to the hope that we find in the biblical Greek for Paul, hope is, is not just worthless optimism. Hope is certainty, right? This is not like the college kids in 2020 taking their stimulus checks and, and purchasing stocks, right? <laughs> and doing thorough research that includes things like, my roommate said this one was going to go up. <laughs> what is it? Microsoft? No, it's Bed Bath & Beyond. They sell beds and baths and beyond. Paul's hope is not just optimistic, fluffy, clouds, motivational speaker type of hope. It's a different type of hope we see in verse 15. It is hope that there will be a resurrection of all people, right? So we see, first thing this morning, Paul's hope in God is not just worthless optimism. It is the assurance of a future resurrection. His hope is in the fact that the struggles of this life, the chains that he faces, these will one day just be a breath of a moment compared to eternity, right? And the greatest way to enter eternity is to enter knowing that you gave everything in hope and that you held tightly to Christ in hope and kept the faith 
and hope. And Paul describes this in the next verse. Look at verse 16. He says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Is a clear conscience. First to God. He's tried to live in righteousness as best he can. Humility and repentance before God. But second, he seeks to live with a clear conscience before man. At times throughout Scripture, we'll see the apostles are commanded not to preach the gospel. That is not a commandment that the apostles are going to obey from man. That is a law that will not be obeyed by God's people. Because Christ has commanded us to preach the gospel to all nations. But as best they can, they live at peace. As Christ says, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Some of you were driving here very late this morning, and and the speed that you drove is something that God has washed and cleansed you of. (laughs) But the police officer who pulls you over will not care that God has washed you clean of this. That's what it means to be citizens of heaven while we are still citizens of this earth, walking this earth. And when we examine verse 16 here, we, we see Paul's not saying that he's perfect. He's saying he strives to have a clear conscience. We saw this last week when Paul has remorse for disrespecting the high priest by mistake. Just like King David, are we asking God to search our hearts? I think if we're not, we're missing out on an incredible freedom that we see here in the life of Paul. He has the freedom of a clean conscience before God and man. It changes the way he can stand before men on trial. It changes the way he can look at a person in the eyes who is accusing him. Maybe you're quietly struggling with something for weeks or for years. I think you look at a passage like this and you're reminded as Paul speaks of this, that, and that's exactly what Satan wants for the people of God, right? He wants us to be surrounded by evil and surrounded by the lies of culture. And just when we're about to open our mouths and declare what is true and speak against evil and and defend our children from a, a perverse culture, Satan wants to have a way to just whisper into our minds a voice of doubt that says, who are you to speak about anything? Don't you have your own issues? Shouldn't you just keep your beliefs to yourself? Paul stands before these men as he stands before men over and over in Acts, believing that he has the truth that the world needs. And he has the confidence to speak it boldly because he has a hope in heaven, but because he has kept a pure conscience before God and men. Humility leads to repentance. Repentance leads to assurance. And out of that assurance, we are bold in the mission of the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, we keep going. So Paul is still explaining his side of the story. We pick up in verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This is what we've been seeing for many chapters now. He's headed there with these offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. 
or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So quick summary of our boy Felix here, okay? Not a good dude, terrible ruler, general bad guy. Background is his his wife, Drusilla, who's the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Felix persuaded her to leave her husband and marry him. There's a very scandalous story. involves a magician. uh, Very cool, (laughs) but not cool, you know? crazy fact, they had a son who died in A.D. 79 when the volcano Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the city of Pompeii. You see how these facts of history line up with real historical events. It's crazy. And so you see here in verse 26, Felix Felix is kind of bummed that Paul won't just pay him off, right, for his freedom. He knows that He has a prized possession in Paul who is beloved by Christians all around the empire. This guy, Paul, is an influential dude. He can get money if he needs money. Why won't you just pay me off? Like, we all have a few social media influencers that we would love to throw in prison. I certainly have my list, right? (laughs) But you know they can just weasel their way out, right? Rich people don't go to jail. Aunt Becky went to jail for what, like three days? <clears throat> but Paul Paul's not interested in wasting his money on bribes and schemes, right? He's not interested in trying to improve his personal situation. I think we see throughout the life of Paul that his he's perfectly content with God's wisdom to bring him from place to place. And many of those places are prison cells. And he makes the most of it. Verses 24 and 25. He reasoned with Felix and his wife, preaching about the faith that we can have in Jesus Christ and the righteousness and the coming judgment. And we don't get a lot of insight into the end result of all this. Maybe God planted some seeds through the preaching of Paul. Maybe one day you'll be walking the streets of heaven and see Mrs. Felix, right? But what we do know for sure here is really simple, that Paul's life validates his preaching. The way that he lives his life validates the things that he's saying over and over. I mean, just imagine if Paul was running around saying, we have a hope 
in heaven. We don't need anything in this world. I want to tell you about righteousness and self-control, but also I just slipped 50 pieces of silver into your tunic. So if you want to just leave my prison cell open tonight, that would be great. Because I'm desperate to get out of here. Food is terrible. It's cold. It bugs. I don't sleep well on a spring mattress. I, I need memory foam. Instead, we see Paul's life reveals a radical contentment that has no earthly explanation. Right? And so the authentic Christian life, then, is the God-reflecting life. Right? It is the, the unexplainable willingness to sacrifice and suffer for Christ that shows this world how great Christ is. The delight we have to speak of Christ and to sing about Christ, this tells the world that it's not a game to us. It's not a fraud to us. This is not a pyramid scheme. I think that's the problem with religion, right? It's <laughs> we don't know what is authentic in a religious system because in a religious system, everyone still owes so much to God. And our culture is skeptical of religion for good reason. Because everyone ends up running around doing good deeds. But it's all just kind of a giant scheme. Right? Every Christmas, growing up, my Mormon neighbors would make strawberry jam for the whole street. And I always remember knowing my theology, you know, <laughs> thinking, they're so kind. Or are they so kind? I don't really know. Are you doing this because you love me or because you want to earn God's favor through good deeds? And so they're like, well, you don't have to take the jam. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> you leave the jam where it is. I'm just processing it all, okay? But the jam stays. <laughs> when Kim Jong-un is worshipped by families in North Korea, it's because the alternative is to be punished by death. But when Christ is worshipped by his people around the world, it's because he rescued us from death. Because he is our delight, right? He took our sin and our shame and gave us life. And when Christ is worshipped by Christians as they are beaten and mocked and imprisoned, the world sees the worth of Christ in the most beautiful way possible. Right? You can go find religious gatherings all over Orange County every week, and there's things like what we do, right? There's music, there's words, but in many places, nobody really wants to sing. <laughs> Why? Because they didn't come to worship a God that they love. They came to check a box to keep God on their side. This is like basic accounting happening in more religious gatherings. Keeping track of your debts and who owes who. It's hard to sing when you're calculating in your head how many more songs until it's over, right? And whether or not the cafe down the street will still serve breakfast at 11.05, right? It's a ritual 
It's, it's transactional sacrifice. I will give God one hour a week. I will do my duties. And in the days ahead, God will owe it to me to keep my life together. This is not the mindset for the people of God, right? Even in false imprisonment, verse 24, Paul just wants to talk about the hope of God, about faith and repentance. We delight in God. We find contentment in sorrow. These things shout the worth of God to a world that chases after worthless things. And you see it everywhere in the Christian life. I was just thinking this week, I mean, when a true believer in God receives a cancer diagnosis, it brings sorrow and tears because that is the natural thing that that should bring. But it can also bring trust and contentment and peace. And it can even bring worship because God is good even when we don't understand it. But for the transactional religious person, the cancer diagnosis, it brings anger and rage. And the judgment of God's character and God's wisdom, because God cannot be good unless it fits with my definition of what is good. And all of this ultimately reveals who we believe is on the throne. Religion collapses when your plans collapse but hope in Christ endures no matter what. Religion can survive jail cells with earthquakes and and miraculous chains falling off of you, but only hope in God can survive night after night when the shackles do not fall and earthquakes do not come and the suffering continues day after day, right? And Paul has now experienced all of this. And his attitude is the same, like that of Job. You give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? I wrote this down this week. Either God is on the throne, and my life is meant to serve his purposes, or I am on the throne, and his power is meant to serve my purposes. Religion is an attempt to manipulate God. Hope is the contentment to just trust in God. These things are not the same, right? Which one did Paul have? And you can't play games with this stuff. God is not impressed with heartless sacrifices for future blessings. We serve a God who made the universe. If he needed something, he could probably figure it out. The only thing we have to give God is our worship. And true worship flows out of true belief. And Paul believed, it says, in the hope of Christ and the future resurrection. Again, look at verse 26. Felix thinks, oh, Paul will bribe me because there's no way he will be content to stay in prison. And then the very next verse, verse 27 says, and two years later, (laughs) right? Nice try, Felix. You just keep waiting, little buddy. What's Paul saying to Felix by the way he acts? He's saying, Felix, you can sit on a throne, but you're just a few drops of ink on a few pages of history that tell the story in this moment of a man named Paul who was content in God. 
and he was content to let God write the rest of the story. Yeah? I feel like I've been ranting for a long time. I'm just going to keep going. Okay? This is like very important, and we're going to waste our whole lives if we don't get this. Does that make sense? Yeah? A few months from now, when summer is over, and the trees begin to change, and the vibrant seasons of Orange County turn the leaves from dark, ground, dark green to light green, Many of you men in here will be forced to take family photos for Christmas cards. And your wife will have a vision for it, something she saw online. And these are dark days that we're living in, men. But what makes them darker is when the outfits are coordinated. And you push back and you say, I love you, but... I can't wear a white sweater with white pants <laughs> on the sand at the beach as the surfers are coming out of the water. I might know one from high school. And your wife looks at you and she says, yes, you can, and you will. And in that moment, you think, this isn't right. I'm too cool for this. Are you sure about that? Because I just signed a contract this last week, and on September 23rd, we're bringing all the men from Village Church up to the mountains, and we're going to fill a room, 70 to 100 men, and we're going to be singing songs in unison to God, love songs. Imagine texting all your old buddies from college and saying, hey, I just got done with a little sing-along with a hundred dudes. <laughs> we were just pouring our hearts out. Some guys were crying, so we just put our arms around them. We were hugging. <laughs> You're not as cool as you think you are. What matters ultimately is the truth, Right? All of these other things are nonsense. What ultimately matters is the truth. Is God who he says he is? Is God really worthy of all of our praise? Did he really rescue us from sin and death and give us eternal life? Because if God is who he says he is, then there is nothing greater than singing songs of love and praise and affection for him walk into a men's retreat together as men and we sing loudly to Jesus. We fill a room with the voices of men worshiping together and singing songs of love and affection for God. It's because it's true. Because it's true, it's right. Again, Paul's life validates his preaching. Does your life validate the things that you say you believe? Does your life validate the things that you say you value the most? Let's keep going. Verse 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man 
Let them bring charges against him. So Felix is out. Festus is in. Turns out, didn't have nine lives. Okay, that's a good joke. Rome is shuffling around their leaders. The Jews are quick to take advantage of this. And you can, you can kind of see how very similar to when Jesus is on trial. You know, the Roman authorities are kind of like, this is not their first rodeo, right? They've, they've dealt with plenty of bad dudes, and it's obvious with Jesus and Paul, these guys are not a threat to anyone. But you have the Jewish religious leaders, and they're hysterical, and they're fired up, and he must die. He's a threat to everyone. And, and Festus in verse 5 just says, calm down. If you're so right, then send some men to prove it and lay out your case. Look at verse 6. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Just really quick, verse 7, a good reminder for us as God's people, right, that God's people have been on the receiving end of false accusations and lies since the beginning, right? And for us, in, in the days of head, like, we're probably not going to be the largest voice in the culture. We're probably not going to be the loudest voice. But we can just calmly believe that truth is on our side. And I think this passage encourages us towards a a Christ-reflecting life, even if our own reputation and character are attacked along the way, right? Because God in His perfect wisdom will still find a way to use our struggles to show His glory to the world if we hold fast to Him, even in the midst of lies. And that's how we arrive to our last section here. We see Paul has a commitment to the finish, right? Starting in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so Paul's going to be on his way to Rome pretty soon for a trial, and this is his right as a Roman citizen. And we get kind of one more powerful statement here from Paul. He says, I do not seek to escape death. This is true of his life all throughout what we see in the book of Acts. In particular, he's talking about here, if I, you know, these charges are false, and, or if these charges are true, then I don't seek to escape death. But it's also just what we find as his attitude all throughout his life. That's the story of his life. I'm just going to be in the right place doing the right things. I'm not going to look for the safest place. I'm not going to look for the most comfortable place or the most glamorous place. I'm just going to do what I'm called to do. I'm going to face whatever comes. And this is the example of Paul because this is the example of Christ, right? Christ died in our place for our sins, not seeking to escape death, but going willingly to the cross. 
And it is out of this reality that God can say, that, that Paul can say, I don't, I don't seek to escape death. That's a good thing to be able to declare. I think there's a more general statement too beyond that and that's a specific statement about the deeper heart of Paul that's laid on the altar for God but we also can just say simply I don't seek to escape period Paul's not going to run away from the potential risks he knows the future he knows what's at stake he knows the rewards and so he's not running away I think it's really easy for us to spend our lives with our minds just fixed on avoiding negative outcomes. And then we look back and we have nothing to show for a life. This week, I was hit with this reality that there's been like different seasons of life that just are just totally different in how I'm needed of people around me, right? Like, you're young, it's whatever, right? You just ask your parents for a snack. Remember, like 15 to 25 years old, you got tons of time, no money, right? 25, 35 something, you got some time, some money, but you got to spend it all on like going to your friends' weddings and buying them presents, right? The worst. The dark days. (laughs) And I'm starting to feel like my wife and I were coming to this season of life that I wasn't prepared for. And it's this season called People Think We're Old Enough to Ask Us for Help. <laughs> and I don't mean like helping people move. I did that a lot. But they think we're old enough to ask us for wisdom. And this is a new thing. <laughs> it's also just a season of life where people that we grew up with and people that we thought were doing really well are starting to have their lives fall apart. Starting to see more and more that their houses were built on sand. And they're starting to see their first storms. You start realizing, I, I have friends who are now wanting to just give up on marriage. And I have friends who had children and now they have in their marriage just no relationship of their own. And I have friends who grew up in the church and now they can't even tell me what church they go to. You start to realize (laughs) it's a long, hard, day-by-day journey following Christ and cultivating all of these different areas of life that you feel like you've got to get right. And the temptation to just escape can be so strong, especially in seasons when you feel like Everyone around you needs you. I don't know if you ever feel like that. (laughs) Having a conviction like we see from Paul here, having a conviction in the gospel means that everything matters. What I see with my eyes matters. What I hear with my ears matters. How I spend my time matters. Like life would be so much easier if I didn't have convictions that I find in God's word. I could just throw my toddler in front of the TV all day. What'd you watch today? Terminator 3. That's wonderful, sweetie. Whatever God has placed before you in this season, whether it's sickness or health, whether it's abundance or scarcity, 
whether it's a, a family of young children to raise or teenagers to guide or a career to get started, what would it feel like to say with confidence in Christ, to say, I don't seek to escape, right? I don't seek to escape, period. This life will not be easy. There will be many things that I'm called to do, but I'm not running away. There are people in my life that God has placed in my life that need to be cherished. I have little kids who need to know about Christ. I have friends who need me to be a good friend to them. I have friends who are going through hard things. I feel like my house is constantly full of the sound of small children saying, Dad, I need help. So many tangible needs all around. I need to be generous with my time and generous with my money, with my gifts. The contentment to just simply say, I'm not going to run away from this. And I invite you this morning to stick with me in this, for us to stick with each other in this because it matters. But most importantly this morning, I think we invite ourselves to just declare and believe that God is going to stick with us. God's not running from us. You're going to mess up a hundred more times every day, and God will hold tightly to you. Christ didn't escape death on the cross, and so by the grace of God, no matter what burdens we carry, we will never have to carry the weight of sin, and that changes everything about how we carry everything else in this world. And so Village Church, we like Paul, we have a hope, in God. And we, like Paul, we have a hope that brings us contentment. And this contentment gets to reflect Christ and his worth to a world that is desperate for him. And we get to walk this road to the finish line. We don't escape. There's nowhere else to go, right? We're headed home. And so the good news for us this morning is that the hope of eternal life in Christ, it is the freedom that we need to live as God's people. We are content in the struggles and we are continuing to the end. Amen, Village Church? Yes. you pray with me? God, we just, as your people, we just say that we believe this. We believe that you are who you say you are. We believe, God, that this path that you've brought us to is worth it and in all of the things that we face they will be worth it in the end to not look for an escape but to cling to you to hold tight to you that the world will see your beauty in that God we're just a room full of people who know what is true and know that you are worth everything. God, it's such a delight to just fill this room with praises for you because you're worth it. And, and so we do that now together. In Jesus' name, amen.